Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Um, there are Bibles available. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And, and the reason I even bring that up is because there's going to be a lot of Bible reading. We're going to cover a couple of chapters in Exodus today. And uh, a lo- most of what we'll be looking at will not be on the screen just because there's so much of it. So you'll want to have a Bible available um, so we can look at all the text together because it's, it's glorious. We're going to be doing quite a bit of reading um, and, and, I, and I have confidence that it will bring great joy to your heart to look at this section of Scripture. So again, yeah, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and, and the Astros will bring one to you. Well, what does it mean to be saved? We use that phrase quite a bit as Christians. And we typically associate salvation with our slavery being lifted, our slavery from sin and God setting us free to serve Him alone. Or we consider it in our uh, being freed from the consequences of that slavery to sin and being freed from the wrath of God. And both those things are absolutely true in regard to salvation. But they're incomplete. Salvation considers more than just freedom from slavery to sin and freedom from the wrath of God. It considers also knowing God. The story of Exodus, really the theme of Exodus, is the redemption of and reconciliation of God with His people. And we haven't mentioned that theme very much in our series so far in Exodus, and that's really because everything we've looked at so far has just been really setting the stage, setting the scene for what we're going to look at in the chapters today in the the plague narrative. But it's necessary for us to understand that in taking His people out of Egypt... God's aim is not simply to pick on Egypt, to beat up Egypt. God's aim is not even to humiliate Pharaoh through the plagues. His aim is to redeem his people and to reconcile them back to himself so that they might know him. This is the point of the plagues. This is the point of Exodus. This is the point of salvation. This is the point of your life. That you might know God. In John 17, right before our precious Lord was crucified, He began to pray. And He made this plea to God the Father. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then in verse 25, at the end of his prayer, he says, O righteous Father, 
even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. God's desire is not simply that Israel would know Him. We've been talking about Israel in the book of Exodus, and that this is about His redemption and reconciliation of Israel. But it's much bigger than that. If you look at John 17, verse 20, in the middle of that prayer, He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the whole world may believe that you sent me. See, God's desire is that all people everywhere might know him. That every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why he commanded the church to go forth in Matthew sixteen fifteen. When he said, oh, sorry, Mark 16, 15, when he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. God's passionate pursuit throughout all of human history is that the whole world might know him. The whole of fallen creation. And as I was studying this and considering these things, I was, my mind was brought back to Romans chapter 8, where God talks about creation, and he says, or sorry, when Paul talks about creation, and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So consider that. God's desire is that the whole cre- of creation might know Him as we look at this story in Exodus of the plagues. To just kind of set maybe a map before us, I want to uh, just prevent us a, a, a chart of the literary structure of the plague narrative. And that's pretty hard to see. Um, but the way it's broken down is in each, there's really three cycles to the plague narrative. And in each cycle, there's a clear statement that God's purpose is that Pharaoh would know that he is Yahweh. And it, but it increases. In the second cycle, it's that he would know that he is Yahweh in the midst of the land. And then finally, in the third cycle, that he would know that Yahweh is God over all the earth. And there's this increasing severity as well. 
But the patterns are very similar. The usage of the staff and that the first plague in each cycle uh, is Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh in the morning. And then at another time, and then in each cycle, on the last, the third plague in each cycle, there's no warning given at all. So that's how it's structured. So just consider that as we go through each of these things. In another slide, it'll come up again, so don't feel like you have to soak it all in right now. But I want you to know where we're going, how this, how this narrative is mapped out. And that's really why we're taking it all in one chunk, is because it's really one story. But I also want to consider some of the key themes. Well, the first and really the main theme of this narrative is that the whole world would know God. And we can see in the structure that that's what it is. And how this knowledge comes is in seeing God's power exerted over the Egyptians and really over the Egyptian gods. And over their so-called power. I also want you to be paying attention to um, God's power over Egypt. God did choose the plagues that he chose for a purpose. Each of those plagues represents an Egyptian deity. And the names of the Egyptian gods aren't mentioned, but that's really because they're not the point of the narrative, which is the point. The Egyptian gods are totally insignificant, totally powerless in their own land. There's also increasing severity in the plagues. As we read through each of these cycles, you will see things get worse and worse for the Egyptians. The first three plagues are little more than annoyances. And the second, they completely destroy the land. Or sorry, the second, they bring pain and hardship. And the third, they completely destroy the land. And that final plague brings death. But also, notice Pharaoh's hard heart. Each of the plagues ends with noting the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Despite the increasing severity of the plagues, Pharaoh's heart continues to harden. And although he presents at times this appearance of repenting, Pharaoh continues to refuse to obey God and to release the Israelites from their service of him to their service of Yahweh. So let's look at these things a little more deeper as we consider this famous story of God's redemption of his people, beginning in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And this brief section really is 
a summary introduction of what's going to come. Pharaoh and his arrogance wants to put God's power to the test and really put his power to the test against his own power, the power of the Egyptian magicians and their black arts. And note that everything happens just as the Lord said it would. When Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh, he demands a sign. And God does humor Pharaoh by providing him with 11 very powerful signs to come. Beginning with this staff being turned into a serpent and finally ending in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And throughout this narrative, the plagues are frequently referred to as signs. They're signs. And this request for a sign is a test of God's authority and power. It's very similar to the request made by the unbelieving Jews in the New Testament. You'll recall how Paul notes in 1 Corinthians that the Jews uh, demand a sign and, and Greeks seek wisdom. And Jesus was frequently challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to prove his authority with a sign. For instance, in Matthew 12, It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then again in Matthew 16, they come again and ask him for a sign from heaven. And he says, When it's evening you say it will be fair weather and the sky is red, but no If it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. See, this is indicative of the hard-heartedness of the Jews, in that even in Jesus' time, they were more like Pharaoh than they were like the Israelites. And I'm not sure what the significance of the serpent is, except maybe that it's, it's the sign of Egypt. It's the sign of Satan. And what we see is God's power swallowing up the power of Egypt. And eventually even all of Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea are swallowed. But you will note that despite this sign, Pharaoh's unrepentant. This pattern continues. Let's look at the First plague in chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me. In the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. See God's power over Pharaoh here. He calls him to obedience. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold with the staff that is in my hand. I will strike the water that is in the Nile. And it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. And the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, 
over the rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So God commands Moses and Aaron to rebuke Pharaoh for failing to do what he has commanded, to let his people go to serve him. And that's the word he uses in verse 16, that they may serve me. See, God's people are not meant to serve this world's rulers. They're his people. And the result of this disobedience is that Pharaoh will really discover who is God in Egypt. And it's not him. It's not his gods. Notice what God says in verse 17. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. In other words, not you. You are a mere taskmaster and oppressor. You're a mere puppet of Satan. You have no power, Pharaoh. Your gods have no real power. And we see God demonstrating his sovereign power, particularly by striking the life source of Egypt, the Nile. And he turns it into into something of death. And unlike Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron do exactly what God commands. And as they're obedient to God, God's power is manifested in them. But what's important to note is that Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to do the very same thing. They turned the water into blood, but they were unable to turn the blood back into water. Just as they were able to turn their staffs into snakes. And the point is, they can match these miracles with their demonic powers, but they can't reverse them. See, Satan can only twist and distort what is good. He can only turn life into death, but... Only God can resurrect life. Satan and his servants can take life away. But they can only turn life into death. They cannot make life out of death. And despite the obvious difference in God's and Egypt's power, Pharaoh is unresponsive. The second plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. 
The frog shall come upon you and all your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1, God repeats his command to Pharaoh to let his people go and worship him. And God warns that if Pharaoh refuses to obey, he's going to strike Pharaoh with another plague. It's the same word, strike, that Moses it was used uh, earlier when Moses struck the Egyptian and the other Israelite was striking his neighbor. It's, to, it's, it's as if uh, the point is God is going to uh, strike Pharaoh again and again to help him wake up to his powerlessness. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't. And so the frogs just start coming out of nowhere throughout the land, even to their places of cooking. And at this point, we would expect the Egyptians to turn to their frog god. Hoppy, H-A-P-I, not H-O-P-P-Y. Yeah, Hoppy. But of course, the goddess Hoppy is of no help. The magicians, again, are able to reproduce this miracle. But ironically, they didn't even help. They actually only make the situation worse. There's more frogs. Such is the way of the world. And in verse 8, Pharaoh agrees to release them to sacrifice. But again, he's not releasing them to serve God. In Pharaoh's mind, they're still his servants. But he let them sacrifice. And Moses agrees. And in order to show the power to reverse this sign, and to show that this is God's power, not just some coincidence, not Moses even, he he tells Pharaoh to name the time and place. Name the time and place when you would like me to kill these frogs and have them go into the Nile. But the frogs would only be in the Nile. And so, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. The section ends with Pharaoh doing just as the Lord predicted. When the frogs are gone, despite the stink, his heart is hardened. Which brings us to the third plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, 
Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that we become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. And the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And the word in the ESV for gnats, as it's translated gnats, it's the generic Hebrew word for bugs. That's why it's sometimes translated lice or mosquitoes in some translation, ticks, fleas, even flies. The word just means bugs. It could, it could refer to a number of different um, creepy crawling things. It seems most likely that it probably refers to the scarab, the, the scarab beetle, which is the dung beetle. Because the Egyptians were fascinated by this scarab, and that's why they would put them in their tombs and, along with their mummies. And they're also figured a lot in their artwork. And the reason for this is because of Egypt's fascination with life after death. Each, the Egyptians wanted to live again after their death. And so they were fascinated with things that seemed to be able to have the power to do, to bring life after death. And what's interesting about the dung beetle is that it could do that. They would lay their eggs in poop or dung. And they would roll this dung around until finally their eggs hatched out of it. It's also what seems to be the point of the flies. Flies lay their eggs in dead, rotting corpses or meat. And life comes out of this death. So both these plagues to Egypt symbolize their fascination of achieving life after death. But of course, these idols don't bring life to Egypt. They only bring death. And note that in verse 19, God, and because God alone can produce life from death, the magicians recognize they can't do it. They recognize God's made this life come out of just the dust of the ground. We can't do that. That's the finger of God. But that testimony has no impact on Pharaoh's heart. Just as God said it would. Which brings us to the second cycle of plagues. And the fourth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that none of the swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants, from his people, tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. Again, in the second cycle of plagues, we see the severity increased. And just as we might increase the severity of punishment towards an unrepentant person, God increases his severity in dealing with Pharaoh. The Egyptians' fly god, Yutkitit, was unable to help them from this plague. Moreover, the flies were kept from the land of Goshen, where the Israelites live. And God is manifesting his power and demonstrating not only about bringing flies on the land, but only limiting it to the land of Egypt, not to where the Israelites live. The purpose being that Pharaoh would recognize that Yahweh is God. What's interesting, though, is in chapter 8, verse 25, Pharaoh allows Moses to make a sacrifice, but he specifies that it should be in the land. And Moses refuses, not because... The Egyptians that, that um, yeah, sorry, he, he refuses because the Egyptians would be offended, not because God can be worshipped in Egypt, cannot be worshipped in Egypt. And then eventually in 828, he does accept Pharaoh's plea. Despite the fact that this isn't what God commanded, God did command a three day journey. But it seems that God accepts this plea of Moses's, not again because it's obedience on Pharaoh's heart, but because he knows that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. And I point this out because it seems that Moses is vacillating a bit right here. But you'll see as God's power continues to increase, and as he demonstrates his power through Moses, and as Moses continues to trust and obey him, you'll begin to notice a tone change in Moses. I get the sense here that Moses just wants to get this ordeal over with. He wants to be gone. Let us go sacrifice. But by the time we get to the end of the plague narrative, Moses is firmly aware that of God's unrelenting power and purpose. And he's not going to yield a bit to Pharaoh's demands. See, we see not only Pharaoh learning who God is, Moses himself is learning the power of God. Brings us to the fifth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall 
with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So Moses commanded to go and rebuke Pharaoh again, so that the Israelites would be allowed to go and worship God. And again, this is attack against the Egyptian gods, particularly Hathor and Amon, the the livestock gods, the bull and cow god. And the patterns continue in this plague. There's uh, the time is specified and a warning of the consequences, which will be death to the livestock. And Israel is spared again. And, And again, Pharaoh remains unmoved. Which brings us to the plague of boils. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall be fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The soot that he takes is from brick kilns. That's right. The very same kilns where the Israelites were required to produce Bricks unrealistically to make monuments for Pharaoh. And this soot turns into boils. And this appears to be an attack on the goddess Isis, who was the the goddess of health and healing. And the growing intensity of this plague is seen in the fact that now, not only are the magicians not able to reproduce the plague, they themselves are not even able to stand before Moses. But Pharaoh's heart remains hard, just as God predicted. And this brings us to the third cycle of plagues. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field that is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing, probably lightning is what's referred to there. Continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been seen in all the land since it was a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right and I, my people, are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the air and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they're late in coming up. This seems to be a parenthetical statement that's given to explain that there are still some things left to be destroyed, which will be destroyed in the next plague with the locusts. That's why that's there. So Moses went out from the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased. The rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased... He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This section gives us the fullest explanation of the purpose of the plagues. In verse 14, God repeats the reason for the plagues, that you would know that I am the Lord in all the earth. There is none like me in all the earth. It also shows us in 9, verse 15, that God could easily have wiped out the Egyptians already. But he doesn't wipe them out for the purpose that his name would be declared in all the earth. This is his ultimate goal. There is more here, though, than just the observation by Pharaoh or even by the world that God is all-powerful. This is the ultimate God. And the ultimate aim of God and through the release of Israel, God's name will eventually be proclaimed through Abraham's seed. And through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
It's for this purpose that God exalted Pharaoh into the position of being a horrific slave master over Israel. We see now in this Exodus story the reason for the oppression of Israel. We see who really is in charge of all the events, the good and the bad. And that there is nothing that doesn't have a purpose. And God rebukes Pharaoh for exalting himself. He says, I exalted you. And you continue to disobey me by exalting yourself. You don't get it, Pharaoh. Your exaltation into your position has nothing to do with you. The world rulers need to recognize this as well. Today. Know this, Barack Obama. Your exaltation is not about you. Know this, Vladimir Putin. It's not about you. Know this, Assad. It's not about you. Know this, Angela Merkel. It's not about you. David Cameron, your exaltation into your position is not about you. It is so the Lord's name may be proclaimed in all the earth, whether they recognize it or not. They were not exalted to serve their purpose, but God's. You see, even God mercifully warning Egypt to bring things into shelter to avoid destruction. See, it shows he's not simply out to get Egypt. Some heed his warning, some don't. Those who fear God's word find safety. Those who trust in their own gods will face destruction. And in verse 27, we finally see Pharaoh acknowledging his wrongdoing. He confesses that this judgment is too much for him. But this is, this is just a foxhole confession. It's the result of fear and pain. It's not the result of true faith, of true repentance. As we see, when that pain is finally removed... So is this newfound faith in God. It's not real. And notice Moses' response to this confession in verse 29. He'll pray to Yahweh so that Pharaoh might know that he is the sovereign Lord of the earth. See, it was not enough to pray and have the plague stop. God demonstrated his power, the forces of nature, to show his sovereignty. The fact that the earth is his. He created it. He can destroy it. If people sin by ignoring his word and not fearing him, he can bring judgment upon them. If any fear Yahweh, if they obey his instructions, they will be spared. But despite this fact, Pharaoh's heart remains hard. He's unrepentant after seeing the judgment of God cease. And again, this is exactly what God said would happen. God's word is true and should be feared. The eighth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. 
I'm eager to talk about that, but let's finish this section. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. That's a lot of locusts. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians. As neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast of the Lord. But Pharaoh said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that's what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the whole land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So. He went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong east wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people go. The section gives us a little further explanation of God's purpose in the plagues. God afflicts Egypt because he desires that his name would be proclaimed by Israel to successive generations as they see the mockery that God makes of Pharaoh. God wants his people, men, women, and children, to know that he is Yahweh. That God is who he says he is. And that no other God, no other land has any power over them. If they are his, they are completely his. All of them, men, women, and children. 
And I also love verse 10 too. The verb translated in the ESV is, I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. It means to occupy oneself at another expense, to toy with someone, which may be paraphrased as mock. And that's why Peter ends in his commentary, says that the purpose of Exodus is to show that Pharaoh is God's plaything. One, one translator translated the phrase, that I amused myself aggravating the Egyptians. Pharaoh's just a toy in God's hand. The most powerful man on the earth is a toy. God makes him look foolish. And all the world's rulers in their arrogance and stubbornness. And interestingly, we see in verses chapter th- verses 3 and then in verse 7, that Mer- Pharaoh's servants pick up on God's warning. But still in the hardness of their hearts, they, they blame Moses. They don't blame Pharaoh. Moses is the problem. They want Pharaoh to concede, not because they accept the word of the Lord. They just want to avoid more destruction. And Pharaoh acquiesces in verse 8. But recognize, he still wants to be God in Egypt. He wants to remain in control, despite the fact that it's, it's done for. He wants to keep control. He won't relent, which is why he asks, who's going? Pharaoh wants to control who's going. He only wants the men to go. But again, God wants all people, men, women, and children, to know and to serve him, to worship him. And so Moses tells Pharaoh that his attempt to conciliate Yahweh with this sort of compromise is not good enough. And so Pharaoh responds to him with a threat. Verse 10, he says, you're, basically, you're going to need your God if I let everyone go, because this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to kill you if I was going to do that. So his offering God to be with him isn't a blessing. It's just the opposite. And you see this pattern continuing. God brings the plague of locusts upon the land. Pharaoh can't stand, so he fakes repentance. Then the plagues go away, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened, which leads to the ninth plague, darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that could be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For the day day you see my face again, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And as has been the pattern in the other two cycle, no warning is given to Pharaoh at this last plague. 
God simply commands Moses to bring forth this ninth plague, which is the most obvious attack on the Egyptian pantheon. As has been mentioned before, Egypt believed that Pharaoh was the son of the sun god, Ra. But as is clearly seen in this plague, even Ra has no power to preserve his son from the wrath of the one true God. And God brings a darkness that can be felt. And so Pharaoh tries to compromise again. This time he will let the Israelites go, but he won't let them have their flocks. But Moses knows by, Moses knows by this time that God will not accept a compromise. He wants absolute and total surrender. Moses explains when they leave, they're going to take everything that belongs to them. But Pharaoh has had enough. He dismisses them from his presence, never to see him again. He's seeking to threaten them here. But what he's really doing is he's, he's, he's nailing the nail into the coffin of his own heart. Bringing about his own destruction with this threat. There's a very eerie ending to this last plague. There's no mention of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart because his heart is completely hardened. And it reminds me of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. And so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they be. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. They wanted to serve creation rather than the creator. See, God is resolute. He wants all people everywhere to know him. But due to the hardness of their heart, despite clear signs of power, despite his sovereignty and existence, Man still refuses to worship and obey God. And what is it that God wants? What is it that is rightfully His that He wants? Your soul. Your service. Your worship. But man continues to harden his heart. There's tremendous encouragement in this narrative of the plagues for us because as believers we see the amazing power of God on display. But there's also a clear and severe warning for those who are unwilling to yield control of their lives over to God. Remember there was... Really only one thing that Pharaoh didn't want to let go of. One thing. Didn't want the Israelites to go. 
There was one thing that kept him from repenting. But God demands all of our hearts, complete obedience. And there's numerous things that people are reluctant to give over to God, reluctant to release control of. Dreams, plans, things, people, wounds. And often it might just be one thing that prevents a person from completely submitting themselves to God. And if you recognize that this is reminiscent of your own heart, consider the result of Pharaoh's hardness. And heed this warning given to churchgoers in the book of Hebrews. Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and the day of testing in the wilderness. There your fathers tested me and tried me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I became provoked at that generation and said, Their hearts are always wandering, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Don't let anything get between you and knowing God. Give him everything. Submit everything in your life to his complete and total obedience. You would submit all of your soul to God. And he will satisfy you with the abundant joy of knowing him. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. There is no more satisfying thing in the world than knowing you, Lord. And I remember that amazing prayer Christ that you gave right before you were crucified for our sins that we might enjoy the glory that you had from eternity past with the Father an eternal satisfying joy God let us give everything to you so that we may have you help us to release all to you and fill us with eternal life and this is eternal life that we may know you father and your son jesus christ we pray these things in his name amen